Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 28th. In today's news, millions of your tax dollars are flowing into Donald Trump's pockets, including three bucks for him to have a glass of water. 70 million Americans have already voted. And we're seeing new evidence that the Obama coalition is reactivating in Wisconsin. But first, the big idea. The Los Angeles Dodgers beat the Tampa Bay Rays 3-1 in Game 6 last night to win their first World Series since 1988. As the Dodgers celebrated their championship on the field, many of them wearing masks, one key figure was missing. Third baseman Justin Turner, the longest-tenured Dodgers position player, had been pulled right before the seventh inning after his latest coronavirus test came back positive. The result apparently arrived mid-game. He was immediately put in isolation, but he was later spotted on the field celebrating with his teammates while not wearing a mask. It was the first positive test for a player in more than six weeks, and coming in the middle of the final game of the World Series, it was perhaps a fitting conclusion to a season that at times seemed endangered by the spread of the contagion. It also appears baseball barely avoided a messy outcome had the series been extended to a seventh game. Dave Scheinan and Scott Allen note that for a while on Tuesday night, Game 7 seemed to be a very strong possibility. The fact the series never got there was due in large part to a stunning and highly questionable pitching move that the Rays made at the bottom of the sixth when they pulled ace Blake Snell from a magnificent performance. It was a move that backfired immediately. The next two Dodgers hitters, Mookie Betts and Corey Seager, both scored, giving L.A. a lead they didn't give up. Turner was just one of the more than 70,000 Americans who tested positive for the coronavirus on Tuesday. Our highest count yet again. More than 8.7 million cases have now been confirmed since February, and at least 226,000 of our fellow Americans are dead. Meanwhile, public health officials in Los Angeles said yesterday that huge parties by basketball fans after the Lakers won the NBA championship appear to have fueled a big spike in new cases in the City of Angels. They're worried that it's going to get worse now that the Dodgers have won the World Series. Shockingly, amidst these staggering numbers, many Americans continue refusing to wear masks, even as their hometowns become hotspots. The refusal to go along with expert health guidance has persisted, even in parts of the country that are seeing soaring hospitalizations. This was driven home this week when the coordinator of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Debbie Burks, toured North Dakota, which has had more coronavirus infections per capita than any other state over the past month and has experienced a large spike in deaths. What Burks witnessed dismayed her. Joel Achenbach and Lori Raza report that she complained afterward that she saw fewer masks being used in retail establishments in North Dakota than any other place she's been in the last seven months. Republican Governor Doug Burgum says he personally endorses mask wearing, but he has refused to impose any kind of statewide mandate, saying yesterday that the decision to wear a face covering is a personal choice. Fights like this are playing out across the country. In Louisiana, the Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards, and the Republican attorney general, Jeff Landry, are fighting in court over whether the Pelican state still has a mask mandate at all. Governor John Bell Edwards insists that his mandate is still in effect, but Landry is using an obscure state law to overturn all emergency public health restrictions that have been imposed by Edwards. Edwards says he can't do that. 
Here in D.C., the caseload in the region has jumped to its highest level since mid-August. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, said yesterday that he expects the pandemic to worsen significantly in the coming weeks. But then he added that he has no plans to reimpose any of the types of restrictions that he had earlier this year. And someone leaked a document last night to Yahoo News that shows at least 98 federal air marshals have tested positive for the coronavirus while on the job, casting fresh doubt on claims by airlines that flying is safe. And state universities in New York just announced overnight that they will require all of their students, more than 10,000, to test negative for the coronavirus before they can leave for Thanksgiving break. And we just got word yesterday that a senior Trump official tested positive for COVID after traveling to Europe. Peter Berkowitz, the director of policy planning at the State Department, met with senior officials at 10 Downing Street and the Foreign Office in London and with senior officials in Budapest and Paris earlier this month. An official who saw him told our John Hudson, one of our correspondents at Foggy Bottom, that Berkowitz's mask wearing and social distancing practices during the trip were lax. U.S. embassy staff in Europe had expressed concerns before his trip about him coming during the pandemic, but he brushed him off. Following Berkowitz's visit to London and then positive test, British officials have started becoming much more selective about which Americans they approve entering their country and meeting with their leaders. Sources in London tell John that the Brits have postponed an upcoming trip that had been planned by Elliot Abrams, Trump's special envoy for Iran and Venezuela. They're doing so to protect themselves from the contagion. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, back in 2018, Trump welcomed the Japanese prime minister to his private Mar-a-Lago club. The two could have just as easily met in Washington, but Trump wouldn't have been able to personally cash in that way. In the next two days, as Trump and Shinzo Abe talked about trade and North Korea, Trump's private club in Palm Beach billed the U.S. government $13,700 for guest rooms, $16,500 for food and wine, and $6,000 for roses and floral arrangements. Trump's club nickeled and dimed you and I, the taxpayers, for the smallest of services. Get this. This is just one example of many. When Trump and Abe met alone with no food served, the government still got and paid a bill for what they drank. The Trump Organization, which the president never divested from, charged the government $3 each for glasses of tap water that Abe and Trump drank. Where I come from, tap water is free. Those payments have just been revealed for the first time by my colleagues Dave Farenthal, Josh Dossi, Jonathan O'Connell, and Anu Swame. It is part of a long-running pattern whose scope has become clearer in recent months. Since he took power, Trump has used his office to divert millions of U.S. tax dollars and money from his political supporters into his own private businesses. Now, we've been trying to get a complete picture. The Post has sought to compile examples of the spending through open records requests and a lawsuit that we filed against the federal government. In all, the documents that we have been able to get show that Trump has personally received at least $8.1 million from these two sources since he took office. The real number is probably vastly higher. We also have tabulated that Trump has visited his own hotels and clubs more than 280 times since taking office. 280 times. Every time he does, with the Secret Service in tow, the taxpayer 
foots at least part of the bill. In other money news, the federal tax records obtained by the New York Times show that lenders have forgiven $287 million in debts owed by Trump. The vast majority was related to a failed Chicago project. Rather than warring with a notoriously litigious and headline-seeking client, the Times says lenders decided to cut Trump some slack. Big banks and hedge funds gave him years of extra time to repay the money he owed. Even after Trump sued his largest lender, accusing them of preying on him, the bank agreed to lend him another $99 bucks, more than twice as much as was previously known, so that he would then be able to pay back what he owed them on a defaulted Chicago loan. Ultimately, though, according to the Times, lenders allowed him never to pay for much of what he owed. The rich are different than you and I. <laughs> Number two, the 70 million or so Americans who've already voted equals roughly half the total turnout in 2016. This all but ensures, with early voting continuing through the weekend, that the majority of ballots this election will be cast before Election Day. Amy Gardner and Roz Helderman report that this year's election is on pace for a historic rate of participation not seen since the early 1900s. For now, the early numbers overwhelmingly favor Democrats in 16 of the 19 states that provide such data. But the gap between Democrats and Republicans has narrowed in recent days in several of the key battlegrounds, and more Republicans are expected to vote on November 3rd than Democrats, according to every poll. The question, though, is how many more? Nowhere has the spike been more unexpected than in Texas, where more than 7.8 million voters have already cast ballots, more than 86% of the overall total vote in 2016. The second most surprising surge so far has been in Georgia, where 3 million voters have cast ballots early, more than 70% of the 2016 vote total. Black voters have turned out in especially large numbers in states like Georgia and North Carolina. New voters are also turning out at a remarkable rate. Voters who didn't participate in 2016 accounted for 26% of all early ballots that have been cast nationwide. And other signs have emerged that young voters are on track to sustain the record turnout that they displayed in the 2018 midterms. In Georgia, Joe Biden made his first trip as the Democratic nominee yesterday, and he gave a poignant speech in Warm Springs about healing. Warm Springs is where Franklin Roosevelt went for the hot springs to help when he had polio. Biden called for people to use their votes to free ourselves from the forces of darkness, the forces of division, and the forces of yesterday. With a sea of fog and pine trees behind him, Biden spoke at the Mountain Top Inn and Resort, a getaway filled with log cabins in the hills of the Georgia Piedmont. Then he went to Atlanta for a drive-in rally. Polls show Georgia neck and neck. If Biden wins, he'd be the first Democrat to carry Georgia since 1992. Number three. In Wisconsin, Oshkosh is the biggest city in a county that twice backed Barack Obama and then flipped for Trump. It's also a coronavirus hotspot with rapidly increasing numbers of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. In all likelihood, as goes Oshkosh, goes Wisconsin. You may be familiar with their overalls or their world-class air show. Peter Kendall talked with voters in a ward of the city that went for Trump in 2016 for a single vote after backing Obama both times. Here are some interesting people he met. Eddie Richos, 70, and her son, Steve, 35, haven't voted since 2008. They were inspired back then by Obama's message of change. But by 2016, they were discouraged and disengaged, and neither Trump nor Hillary Clinton drew their support. 
They felt like it was a choice between the lesser of two evils and decided not to choose. These days, both are newly motivated, especially by what they consider Trump's horrendous handling of the pandemic. The president's attacks on the Affordable Care Act also rank high for them because of personal family health concerns. They're terrified that this president is at the Supreme Court trying to get rid of the law. Last week, Eddie cast her first ballot in a presidential election in 12 years for Biden. And her son did the same yesterday afternoon. Lydia Comstock, in 2016, voted for libertarian Gary Johnson for president. She'd been doing well enough pre-pandemic. She was a server at Zeroni's, an Italian restaurant in town, where she could count on making 100 to 200 bucks a night in tips. Then the coronavirus closed the dining room, and she went to take in phone orders for just 7 bucks an hour. Then the schools closed, and the 29-year-old had to supervise her young children during their virtual school day so she could no longer work the restaurant shifts. She and her husband, a pre-press graphic designer, have slashed their expenses. The family stopped ordering takeout food as a way to support local businesses. They didn't want to have to cut back, but Brent Comstock, who's 30, says they really had no choice. They recently slipped their ballots into a drop box at City Hall. Brent decided to support the libertarian candidate, Joe Jorgensen, Lydia's motivation was strictly to defeat Trump. She didn't like it, she said, but she voted for Biden. A Washington Post-ABC News poll out this morning shows Biden has opened a 17-point lead in Wisconsin, 57% to 40%. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 28th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Wear a mask. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.